Hello, and welcome back to the Whiskey Rebels, the only podcast about alcohol where the hosts aren't getting drunk. I'm Drew Brackville. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm John Nelson. And today we're back with another balanced, sober discussion about the philosophical, economic, and regulatory history of alcohol. Our topic for today should be uh, uncontroversial, uh, the religious history of alcohol. Uh, I personally think this is a pretty partic- particularly interesting topic because different religions throughout history have had varying attitudes about the consumption and use of alcohol. You know, even within Christianity alone, different sects and denominations have had widely different views on it. Uh, personally, I grew up in a Baptist home where alcohol was viewed quite negatively. Um, my parents never really drank and didn't really view it as anything other than just sinful or vicious, at least. Um, and I was surprised when I began attending Presbyterian and Anglican churches uh, in college and afterwards and found out that pretty much everyone drinks socially uh, in those circles. Um, so, guys, what has your experience with alcohol and religion been? Well, um, I don't know how, how in-depth I want to get into this, but I did grow up in a, in a Christian home, and, and it was Presbyterian and Reformed, uh, which is kind of a goes hand-in-hand. Hand. But my parents never taught me that alcohol was, like, evil or anything, but they did teach me that it, you know... Be filled with, uh, be filled not with wine, but with the spirit. The kind of idea that it shouldn't be a, deno- a, a dominating factor in your life, mm-hmm. and you should be very careful about the kind of influence that it can wield over you. And, and they had the, you know, they tried to impart on me the like a one drink a day rule, which, whoops, uh, yikes. <laughs> but yeah, I, I still sort of have tried not to let alcohol be too big of a factor in my life, and that part of that is for other reasons, partially mm-hmm. because I, you know. I don't want to become an alcoholic. I, I have seen the damage alcoholism can do, and I have no interest in. Uh, despite the fact that I have an alcohol podcast, I don't want to be an alcoholic. Um, yeah, but we're the podcast where we don't get drunk. There's, yeah, so like my experience is actually kind of similar to yours, John. Um, I had a, I grew up in like a pretty conservative background. Um, we went to like, I was very like much in the Baptist thing, um, which like my family was pretty chill about alcohol, but like I was definitely like exposed to that kind of thinking a lot. Um, there was one experience that really kind of stuck with me. It was actually, uh, it was, I believe I was home visiting from college and I had gone to, um, like their young adult Bible study at the church my parents were attending at the time. Oh, still are. I mean, I, I should preface this by saying like, it's an awesome church. Like, the people there are fantastic. Some of like the friendliest people I've met. Um, but they do have the traditional Baptist view on alcohol, which is don't. Um, and yeah. The, yeah. the the guy leading the Bible study, he was, and I I forget the context. I apologize, but he, the one thing he said was, "Oh, so you know, you'll you'll go out, you'll have a couple of drinks, you'll drive drunk and kill somebody or yourself." And it was this hmm. for him. It was the, this very clear. It was very clear to him that if you have a couple of drinks, it's just a given that you're going to drive drunk. It was just like assumed. Um, which, to be fair, like this guy was a cop, so he's definitely seen like the worst that drinking can do to people. But it was, I don't know, it was a really interesting insight into how he and I think a lot of Baptists in general view alcohol. Yeah. Did, he, did he talk about how important it is to get a good night's sleep or like maybe not take too many meds either? Because those are also important. I had a similar experience with a Baptist that I knew that was like the head of a missionary uh, youth ministry organization that I was a part of. And he would he used to say like, if you've had one beer, you're one one beer drunk. Like even if you're not drunk, you're like moving towards drunkenness, and that in and of itself is like a sinful act. So it's kind so, of kind of similar to like what a lot of modern like Christian theology is on like marijuana. Like it's, I guess, it's pretty I binary. Like you yeah, you smoke it once, you're high. Yeah, but I think that that is illustrative of the uh, 
the mindset of, of people who are very religiously conservative and who are uh, fear the influence of alcohol, even even a little bit, even in moderation, they think that it can be a problem for people. But right, which is a pretty different view from a lot of the ancients, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. A few episodes ago, we discussed how important alcohol was to the religions of the, the the past, the distant past, which is kind of a funny contrast now that it's there's so much revulsion towards it. But like in, in ancient times, alcohol was a part of more or less every religion. We, we talked about how important it was in the days of ancient Mesopotamia and, and, and Egypt. Um, but it was not only a, like a social and an economic good in those times, and it was, but it was also used in religious practices and for example, the, uh, the Egyptians considered beer to be a sacred beverage, and they used it in their, their holy sacraments. And beer and wine were stored with the mummified dead in Egyptian tombs. Um, and it was believed to play a part in their transition to the afterlife. So I think that's kind of a very funny contrast <laughs> to modernity. Yeah, um, alcohol was also very important for the ancient Chinese. Uh, they even considered alcohol to be a spiritual food rather than a material one. Uh, so it was consumed in many different religious contexts, including offering sacrifices to gods or to their ancestors, uh, pledging resolution before going into battle, celebrating victories in those battles, and while attending different uh, festival banquets and that sort of thing. Uh, they actually even codified its use. Um, there's a Chinese imperial edict from around uh, 1116 B.C., uh, that asserted that drinking alcohol in moderation was prescribed by heaven. Uh, it was so pervasive in social and religious life that alcoholism was a major problem back then. Um, laws against making wine were enacted and repealed uh, several times. And while attempts to reduce wine consumption were sometimes successful, people refused to do without beer. And you see that in a few different societies, and we'll get to that later in the episode as well, but um, where only the most prohibitionist of peoples usually were against beer mm-hmm. um, beer was usually considered very nutritious it was considered pretty hard to get drunk off of unless you drank a lot of it whereas well, we talked about how ancient beer had almost no alcohol right in it. Mm-hmm. whereas like wine and especially once distilled liquor came around people were like wow like this is really easy to get drunk off yeah off of and can can become kind of an evil um but uh, for the greeks you know wine was very popular um but uh, Greek philosophy and, and the, the Greek leaders of that time did praise temperance and advocated for moderation in the use of wine and other kinds of alcohol. Uh, historical evidence shows that the Greeks were fairly temperate, actually, as people compared to many other of the ancients. Uh, one famous exception to this, however, was the cult of Dionysus. Followers of Dionysus believed that intoxication brought them closer to the god. Uh, even followers of this tradition, however, warned against habitual drunkenness and intemperance, and mostly reserved intoxication for their religious banquets and festivals. So. Wait, so you're telling me that like even like the Dionysians, like the, the people for whom Bacchanalian revels were literally named, they were like, "Hey guys, don't don't overdo it." <laughs> like, that's. I mean, it doesn't say how often those banquets and festivals happen. Those fair. were those could have been nightly things. Yeah, know. I suppose. But I think they. I mean, they were probably still, at least the more educated ones, realized the dangers and the. Uh, the importance of moderation to some extent. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we can't emphasize enough how pervasive alcohol was in early human religious traditions. Like even the Norse, the Norse religion often used ales and meads in religious festivals, such as uh, Yule and the, the Midsummer Festival, as well as during wakes, christenings, uh, ritual sacrifices. I mean, Norse mythology tells us that the gods had their own ale brewer named uh, Aegir, who held a, a big old party 
for honored guests uh, every winter. And like many other ancient societies, alcohol was viewed by the Norsemen as a gift from the gods. That is one party that I would love to attend. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's just what Christmas is now. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> um, so, so now that we've kind of covered some of the ancient religions, uh, let's talk about um, how alcohol is viewed by the three Abrahamic religions, which are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, they're also referred to as religions of the book because they're gui- they're each guided by this foundational sacred text uh, from which most of their theological beliefs and practices are derived. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we are absolutely touching on, like, I want to be sensitive in this episode, so, you know, we're okay. going to try to treat each of these religious traditions with respect. Um, but it is, I think, true that Judaism is, it's pretty hard to deny that Judaism is the oldest of the three Abrahamic traditions, and it is guided by the Tanakh, which I may be pronouncing wrong. I think that's right. Yeah, which is the core of what Christians today call the Old Testament. Uh, And alcohol is used throughout the Tanakh for religious or sacramental purposes. And wine was presented as a daily drink offering and as part of the first fruits offering. So today wine is often used to sanctify the Sabbath and some Jewish holidays in a ritual called Kiddush. Yeah, I think they kind of just drink wine beforehand i think that's what they mean yeah by sanctify. they probably drink manischewitz don't they yeah i think yeah. something like that um so there's some biblical examples of wine and alcohol kind of being upheld uh in the jewish tradition so the author of psalm 104 writes that wine gladdens human hearts uh, and ecclesiastes solomon writes drink your wine with a joyful heart um, even the even in the book of De- deuteronomy which is a book of a bunch of laws uh, it is written that one may spend the money for whatever you wish. Not sure exactly what money they're referring to here, but the money you have, I guess, on oxen, sheep, on uh, includes wine and strong drink, or whatever you desire. And you shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your household rejoicing together. So there's definitely a sense of wine and, and other kinds of strong drink, which I'm not sure what it would have been back then. Probably. Maybe like a brandy. Did they have brandy back then? I don't know. A fortified wine. Yes, possibly. fortified wine of yeah. some kind. Um, really being part of the worship of God almost in, in a way that a household and that a family would rejoice and, and, and uphold their beliefs with each other and kind of really celebrate uh, just being alive, really. Uh, wine was not seen as inherently bad or harmful in, really in this, in this tradition. Um, but even though there was a pretty positive view of alcohol, there was still also plenty of opposition to excessive drinking within Judaism. Um, as early as Genesis chapter 9, we see Noah becoming intoxicated with wine and lying naked in his tent, where his sons discover him in this drunken state, um, and that paints a much more negative portrait of drinking, mm-hmm. uh, or at least over-drinking. Uh, Leviticus chapter 10 prohibits Jewish priests from entering the temple while intoxicated. Um, both historically and today, Jewish leaders have preached moderation, um, and they viewed excessive drinking as at least a vice, if not a sin against God. Yeah, and, and I think absolute abstinence from alcohol consumption uh, in the Jewish tradition largely would come from an individual's vows or, or their, their religious duties, not because alcohol was seen as inherently harmful. For example, Nazarites like um, John the Baptist was, was one vowed to abstain from wine as part of their ascetic regimen. Um, kings, judges, priests were all discouraged from overconsuming alcohol because it could affect their judgments and other decisions and cause them to be uh, unjust. Yeah, and I, I really like this, the kind of this approach is, uh, and we'll, we'll see this uh, in the next section as well, but kind of, you know, wine is a created 
by man, but it's also, you know, a creation of God and it should be upheld as such. And I kind of like that, you know, it's just, it's not too crazy, but it's also, you know, it, it's a danger. It can be a danger if you overconsume it, just like anything else. Um, and you need to make sure you keep that in mind. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. Um, so after Judaism, um, kind of historically, Christianity is the next of the, of the three. Uh, the sacred Christian text is often called the Holy Bible, um, which includes the Old Testament, uh, which is largely the Jewish text. Uh, but it also adds the New Testament, which is comprised largely of the Gospels, which record the life of Jesus Christ, and the Apostolic Epistles, which are letters from Christ's disciples either to churches or to uh, other Christian, early Christian leaders. Uh, Christianity began as an outgrowth of Judaism, uh, mostly based on the teachings of Christ after his death, resurrection, and ascension, as recorded in the Gospels. Um, so Christianity's relationship with alcohol has ranged pretty widely throughout its 2,000-year history. Um, actually, the, the negative views of alcohol, though, are a pretty modern phenomenon. Um, for the majority of Christian history, the Christian view of alcohol consumption was pretty similar to that of Judaism. Um, the consumption of alcoholic beverages was just part of everyday life, and it was viewed as a joyful gift from God. Um, but, same thing, excessive use was seen as sinful or at least a vice. Um, so this makes sense since... Um, over half of Christianity's sacred text overlaps with the Jewish one. So there's going to be a lot of similarities there. Yeah, and alcohol, um, at least wine, is a part of the most important sacrament in, in, in Christianity, which is the Eucharist, which often is called Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper, um, which, of course, was the rite instituted by Jesus during his Last Supper before his crucifixion, where he gave his disciples bread and wine during the Passover meal and commanded them to eat and drink in the memory of me, me being Jesus, not in, you know, my memory, not easily, yeah. uh, while referring to the bread as my body and the wine as my blood. Probably from the outside, this can kind of you know, seem like a little, little weird. And a lot of different interpretations of what my body and my blood could be. And you see those interpretations uh, kind of manifested throughout all the Christian denominations. Um, most denominations do celebrate the Eucharist or communion or the Lord's Supper or whatever they decide to call it. Um, but, you know, the theological view definitely varies widely across these traditions. Uh, for Roman Catholics and various Orthodox traditions, once the bread and wine are consecrated by the priest, uh, they literally become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ via conversion that Catholics call transubstantiation. So it's the whole, the, the wine and the bread together both be kind of become the whole Christ um, in some sort of supernatural way. Yeah, and there's a, a strong sort of Aristotelian f- philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, substance versus... Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, substance versus, versus the effects yeah, of the, the effects, yeah. bread and the wine. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Luther... The Orthodox don't believe that. They just believe it's all a mystery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't know how it happens, but it does. And, yeah. you know, eh, we're okay with that. <laughs> yeah, there's something to be said for that. Yeah, kind of, yeah. I, I kind of like yeah. that. Like, can't explain everything. Um, Lutherans and uh, many Reformed Christians believe that the whole Christ, including the body and blood of Jesus, are present in the supper in some way, uh, in a concept known as sacramental union, but they reject kind of the literal transubstantiation, that there's some sort of literally uh, change of substance within the materials. Um, Anglicans, of course, you know, adhere to a range of views, uh, (laughs) from kind of the more Lutheran reform view through kind of more of a Catholic view, the Anglo-Catholics kind of adhere to that kind of thing. Um, And then you have other protestant denominations that you know they reject the whole concept of real presence altogether that there's not christ isn't really there um when you take communion uh but they do believe that is it is important um but 
mostly just a ceremonial remembrance um, of the death of Christ. There's not any sort of supernatural thing going on yeah. out there. Um, so outside of the kind of purely like religious ceremonial context, uh, alcohol is viewed through the lens of temperance. Um, his Greek philosophy really passed into Christian ethics pretty early in the early church history. Um, but total absence from alcoholic drinks was pretty rare. Um, in the Middle Ages, wine waking and wine wine making. Yeah, they, they really woke with that wine up now. Wine making. Uh, Make sure and your brewing. wine is woke. So in the Middle Ages, wine making and brewing were taken up by Christian monks, so along with distilling, which we actually talked about in the whiskey episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, they, they were known for making really good alcohol. Um, monks were even allowed to drink beer, although not wine, uh, during fasts. Uh, as Christianity spread throughout the world, missionaries brought grapevines wherever they went so that they could make wine and properly celebrate the Eucharist. And my guess is that the reason they were allowed to drink beer is because there's an important nutritious aspect to it. Um, Mm -hmm. even if they had somewhat clean water, it probably wasn't. Um, enough and if like you can eat beer you can or if you can eat bread you can drink beer probably maybe mm-hmm. um, and uh, as the Protestant Reformation began um, reformers from Luther and Calvin to Zwingli and Knox all pretty much supported the enjoyment of wine as a biblical blessing following this historical tradition even the English Puritans were temperate partakers of God's good gifts as they called them which included it wine and ale Uh, As we mentioned in our episode on Prohibition, episode number two, uh, the Puritans brought with them a considerable amount of beer and wine for the voyage to America. I think it was something like 42 tons or something like that. It was something just obscene amount. Um, So, I mean, yeah. I mean, if even the Puritans drank, like, what changed within the Christian tradition? Like, the people that we think of as, like, the stern, you know, hard-hearted, cold emotionless Christians, what, what happened? Yeah, apparently we can blame the Methodists for that. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, so early advocacy for um, abstentionism largely rose within American Methodism. Uh, so at a Methodist church conference in Baltimore in 1780, uh, the Methodist leaders officially pronounced their opposition to distilled liquor and determined to, quote, disown those who had not renounced the practice, end quote, of producing it. Um, these sentiments were the minority view for a while, Um, until this popular physician named Benjamin Rush argued that the use of what he called ardent spirits uh, introduced the notion of addiction and uh, prescribed abstinence as the only cure. So initially, the vast majority of the temperance movement had only opposed distilled alcohol, but um, and they saw that as making drunkenness as very like inexpensive and very easy. Uh, But the message eventually sort of evolved to include the elimination of all alcohol. And remember, we need to put this in the context of the time when alcoholism had become and was indeed a pretty considerable social ill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we'd like to try and take nuanced, nuanced, nuanced stances on this podcast so that, like, we need to remember, like, as much as we love booze and think regulations on it now are kind of foolish in many, t- in many cases, although I think maybe we're changing our stance on that in, in some ways. <laughs> Depends on the, the regulations. At the time when, when the temperance movement really took off, like, it was a gigantic problem. Right, and I like I tried, and I don't have it uh, written down, but I tried looking for like kind of like what 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 about Methodism and John Wesley caused that tradition to be the one? It's um, and yeah. I couldn't find it theologically, but there's a lot. I mean, it was basically that was the time around uh, industrial age, and John Wesley basically just looked at alcohol and saw look at all the problems that it's causing, mm-hmm. and kind of. He was just kind of, I don't know, like a black yeah. swan or something. He was just kind of the one guy that decided yeah. to do it. 
And for some reason, a lot of uh, Protestant churches went along with it because they saw how bad alcoholism and the, the negative effects of it were, especially around industrial societies. And I think as, as, urban, as urbanization occurred, you know, alcoholism in a, in a small village you know, you have the one dude who's drunk or the couple, the couple guys, and they don't really cause that many problems. But when you have a whole city full of just rampant drunkenness, I think you see that a lot more and you need, you, maybe society really does need someone to step up and, and pronounce that as some sort of evil. Maybe. Yeah. And I think it's easy to sort of, um, we can, I think, speak most authoritatively on the Christian tradition because we speak from within it. But I think it's easy for us to forget how, um, I don't want to say twisted, but how much modern Protestantism has changed from early Christianity and how much it's changed even from the Catholicism of the Middle Ages. Right. Like the, the ideas that modern Baptists have about alcohol are very new and they are very strange uh, when placed in the context of Christianity across the 2,000 yeah. years. That and people even have Judaism for 2,000 years before that. Yeah, yeah. Over the 4,000 years that people have been worshiping the God that we still worship – for the majority of that time, they've been drinking wine while they do it. So that, I think, um, when you place it in that context, modern temperance beliefs are very strange, but there might be reasons why they arose, and they may still have some genuine, you know, points to be made, or, or some valuable points to be made. But anyway, a, a religious prohibition of alcohol had interesting implications for the Eucharist, um, because for nearly... 2,000 years, the, the sacrament did require the use of fermented wine, uh, but with the advent of the temperance movement, many American Protestant churches began using unfermented grape juice, and that, you know, that change, again, was is very strange when you think about it. Mm -hmm. um, but since grape juice begins, you know, naturally fermenting, basically right after you press it, opponents of wine utilized other methods, like uh, reconstituting concentrated grape juice, uh, boiling raisins or adding preservatives to delay fermenting. And in 1869, this is kind of a fun fact, Thomas Bramwell Welch, which, yes, that Welch, uh, an ordained Wesleyan Methodist minister, he discovered a way to pasteurize grape juice and use this preservation method to prepare juice for the Eucharist. And that's why we have Welch's grape juice today. Well, now I feel even better about the fact that I sometimes use uh, Welch's, like their brand of cranberry juice as a vodka mixer. So <laughs> take that, Thomas Bramwell Welch. He's rolling in his grave. <laughs> I mean, whatever you feel about this, though, I do think it's kind of cool. Like, I mean, this I guess coming from a guy who loves free enterprise and you know free markets and all that. But... Like, it's pretty cool that, you know, you, you have kind of this innovation, this entrepreneurship happening within, like, all right, we have a problem that hasn't existed ever. Yeah. Like, how do we solve a problem <laughs> that's caused kind of by religion, I guess? It's caused by our ideology. Ca how caused by our ideology, it? but it's like, I don't know, that's like a pretty creative way. And, I, and probably great pasteurization has leaked and had some positive externalities into other aspects of I mean, society. It, and it's the reason why you can drink grape juice. You know, as we've been saying, today, Christian views on alcohol are about as diverse as any time in Christian history. Uh, for the first 1,800 years, they were pretty similar, and now we're pretty darn different. Uh, so modern Christian views generally can be split into three categories. So there's moderationism, abstentionism, and prohibitionism. So moderationism is essentially the same as the historical and Jewish Christian views, um, views that have been around for a long time and still upheld by maybe a majority of Christians, it's probably about 50-50. Um, 
that the view that alcohol is a gift from God and while its dangers are real, it can be used wi wisely and not inherently harmful. Kind of, if you practice temperance as a virtue, um, you can get away with not becoming an alcoholic or being habitually drunk. Um, abstentionism, as kind of what we've been talking about, is popular among very many American evangelicals and a lot of evangelicals all over the world and kind of like what I grew up with. I was probably somewhere in between abstentionism and more of a prohibitive uh, type of uh, philosophy. But. Yeah, so uh, abstentionists argue that alcohol, any kind of alcohol use hinders moral discretion. It can cause temptation for fellow Christians who struggle with abuse uh, and that their uh, Christian witness is enhanced by their abstention. Uh, so many try to argue away the historical use of alcohol by saying that some consumption was necessary uh, in ancient times and that biblical wine was weaker and diluted. Um, prohibitionists take abstentionism to kind of an extreme. Uh, they argue that alcohol is just an absolutely evil and it has to be completely banned, um, and at least from the church or in some in many cases from society altogether. Uh, for example, in 1851, the Mormon Church officially banned members from consuming alcohol. Um, prohibitionists argue that any uh, apparent biblical use of wine can be interpreted as unfermented grape juice, although this claim is really, really hard to defend. Yeah, that, um, that claim absolutely cannot be defended, simply cannot be defended. But, um, but that's, I mean, that's kind of the view that I, like, my, I think I've convinced my parents otherwise, but I know, like, definitely they're, like, my dad's parents, um, probably many of the people that my parents, the church my parents still go to, actually still believe that. I yeah. mean, they really, but my, I know. sad because I, it's a I had, poor exegesis of the I had quasi-arguments <laughs> with my grandma and, like, having arguments with your grandma is kind of just a moral evil in oh, itself. John. <laughs> but, like, we <laughs> would monster. talk, we would talk, and then I'd have to change the conversation, but, like, talking about how, like, she, like, 100% believed that the wine that he, can like, he, when he converted water jesus converted water into wine that was grape juice when he gave wine at the last supper that was grape juice and yeah. she was very 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 fervent he about says, it Don't and i'm put not new wine in old wine and skins. i'm not totally sure if like, you're letting why? if you're letting grape juice sit around in a wineskin long enough for the wineskin to become old it has turned into wine yeah absolutely <laughs> it happens in about a month <laughs> and there's this weird contradiction too where it's like oh that wine back then wasn't actually alcoholic then why do they warn about the dangers of drinking excess wine right, yeah, around that time? Like, yeah, yeah, and it's—I mean, it's usually—it's even the same word usually. Like the Hebrew word that they use to say "be careful with this" and "enjoy it" are the same word. So they can't <laughs> possibly be wine and grape juice. Oh, the Hebrews. Um, no, I, yeah, I mean, it's just—it's interesting, and yeah, and I—and I don't want to like crap on people. No, but I'll crap is, on that one. We'll, that one's, we'll, that one's we'll pretty, crap on those people, yeah. but like the abstentionists, I have a not little those bit. people, but that belief is yeah, not as defensible. That Absent, abstentionism, I think, is a little bit more defendable. The, you know, and the argument that abstentionists will make that historically wine was watered down, that one is actually fairly strong, I think, given historical evidence. And even the Romans didn't, and you know, we think of the Romans as such a, I'm going to say Bacchanalian again, even though I've already said it once in this podcast but they were a bacchanalian society at least do we think of them in that way although that but maybe they didn't know about cirrhosis of the liver yeah <laughs> hey we got it but no that uh that perception of rome as a society that was profoundly corrupt and, and and always like orgying and reveling is i think again not based in great fact but sure the, the romans knew how to drink but even the romans would look at you funny if you didn't water your wine down. It was called uh, taking it in the Scythian way, which Trajan, the emperor Trajan, was known for drinking wine straight. And his like palace 
uh, uh, palace servants thought he was like weird for doing mm. that. So there is an argument to be made that historically people did water down wine pretty considerably, and that if you were drinking wine straight, that that was an issue. But was that I've, was that a, like would have that just been like a sense of moderation, or was it like yes, just in, like out a of a sense of moderation to make the wine go further? Yeah, and there's also I think a practical effect in that it uh, means you can drink the water if you mix it with the wine. Right. I was I was just gonna ask that like yeah. if the whole if the whole historical argument that you drank wine because the water was bad and mm-hmm. you watered it down like I guess the alcohol could kill some of the germs. I suppose I'm not maybe I don't know. sure how it, how that process not, works. Yeah. I would assume we're not so. scientists. Yeah. Once again, another disclaimer. We are not scientists. <laughs> Nor are, historians. We really. are not historians. We are just three dudes who like to talk about booze. <laughs> but uh, anyway, moving on from, from this. Um, we're going to talk about alcohol and, and Islam. And Islam is the youngest of the three religions of the book. Um, it is guided by the Quran, which was written in the 7th century you know, by the companions of the prophet Muhammad based on the sayings and the life of Muhammad, and much of the Christian Bible is also considered sacred writing by uh, Muslims. Alcohol is pretty much completely forbidden within Islam. Uh, Theologians agree that alcohol consumption is prohibited because it weakens the conscience of the believer. Um, So the key to the Islamic theology of alcohol is the word, I'm going to butcher this, but Khmer? Kamir, I think. Kamir, K H A M R. I'm I'm very very sorry. To I mean, I know like the syllables listening. supposed to be on the second. He's always on the second syllable, like the accents on the second syllable. Okay. In well, in Arabic, I don't know. I'm gonna say Kamir, maybe. That sounds great. Yeah, I'm gonna say that, like that again. Very very sorry to yeah. anyone who actually knows how to pronounce that, and I have offended. So sorry. Um, so that word means intoxicant, which um, and that includes alcoholic beverages. Uh, it's recorded that the Prophet Muhammad stated every intoxicant is Khmer, uh, and every Khmer is forbidden. Uh, Muhammad indicates that Khmer may, may be made from two plants, uh, the grapevine and the date palm. Uh, a minority of Islamic jurists take the concept of Khmer literally and forbid only grape-based or date-based alcoholic beverages, um, allowing those made with fruits, grains, or honey, uh, but this use is pretty rare. I've never heard of date-based wine, but I assume it's probably a thing. I don't know. I've never heard of it either, but you can make wine out of almost any fruit. Yeah. I mean, date-based wine sounds good because I do like no, dates. I don't like dates. Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Anyway, the uh, the Quran itself does warn against intoxicants and largely views them as temptations from Satan. Um, in Surah uh, 590, it is written, O oh, who have believed, indeed, intoxicants, gambling, stone altars, as in uh, sacrifices, and divining arrows are but defilement from the work of Satan, so avoid it that you may be successful. Uh, verse 91 continues, Satan only wants to cause you between you animosity and hatred through intoxicants and gambling, and to avert you from the remembrance of Allah and from prayer, so will you not desist? It's a very strong, like, gambling and intoxicants are kind of like the worst things you can do. Um, it seems to me, like, you usually see in, like, verse 91 here that it's, it's because it causes animosity between uh, probably of different believers of Islam, which, you know, it's probably fair. I mean, if you're losing in gambling, you're not going to be too happy about the guy that you're losing the money to. Yeah. And if you combine Especially that with drunk, yeah. and if you combine that with drinking, you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> yeah. The Quran is, yeah, it's not all negative, um, but it suggests that the negatives of drinking outweigh the positives. Uh, in Surat 2, 219, it is written, 
they ask you about wine and gambling, say, In them is great sin, and yet some benefit for the people. But their sin is greater than their benefit. And they ask you what they should spend, say, The excess beyond needs. Thus Allah makes clear to you the verses of Revelation that you might give thought. Um, so a few Islamic sects do permit the consumption of alcohol, such as the uh, Alevi Muslims of Turkey, which is a sort of mystical branch of Islam. Uh, Ismaili Muslims are known for discouraging rather than prohibiting the use of alcohol, um, possibly sort of along the lines of like Christian abstentionists. Uh, some Muslim-majority countries produce alcoholic beverages even if the Muslims themselves can't legally drink it. Um, so that includes uh, Turkey. Uh, sorry, uh, Rocky. Yeah, that includes uh, Rocky in Turkey, uh, Buka in Tunisia, or wine in Morocco and Algeria. One thing that I, as I was researching this podcast, and I'd never really, I've, I mean, I've never really researched Islam that much, but even like just these, there's like two religion, two parts of their religion that are kind of like sort of okay with alcohol. And like if you start, follow that rabbit trail at all, you realize like how theologically and like even philosophically diverse Islam is as a religion and just mm -hmm. very rich. And like something I've never really considered, and I guess because it, because I'm like a Western Christian, that like Islam's always kind of been like a taboo and like something that I've never really considered researching. Not and a taboo, I don't know but why. Like a, and just an other. Yeah, just an other. Yeah. Um, but it's like really rich and like really cool. Really well, John's cool gonna become philosophy. a Muslim. So. I mean, just because I'm interested in something doesn't mean I'm gonna follow it. But you know, like it's that's what you said when you started going to Anglican church. Fair enough. But no, but I think I mean I think it's just a very rich tradition and something that I definitely want to like study more just to see like what are all these different Shia and Sunni and like we hear all these things on Fox News and I know they I know whatever they're saying is probably 100% wrong, but like I'm interested in like what what actually do the, all these all these different believe and, and maybe they're not all that different I don't know but it does seem like a pretty um, rich tradition um, but historians do debate whether or not Muhammad himself actually drank alcohol which I find kind of interesting um, many uh, historians and scholars do believe that Islamic pro the, the Islamic prohibition on alcohol came many years after Muhammad founded the religion they're just not exactly sure how long um, this is suggested in the Ahadith which are kind of like extra chronic reports describing the words and habits of Muhammad. There, there's several of them. Um, and one of them does say some people drank alcoholic beverages in the morning of the day of the Yahud battle, um, some, uh, I assume, famous battle in, in Islamic history. And on the same day, they were killed as martyrs. And that was before wine was prohibited. So there's this sense that there was a time before wine was prohibited within Islamic history. Uh, historians do suggest that sobriety helped Muslims in battle, um, allowing them to gain a military advantage over their neighbors. So there, there may be something in the sense that Muslims realize that this consumption of alcohol made their ability to conquer others less powerful. And they were like, yeah. hey, we should try the sobriety thing. I mean, and it does say kind of in the Quran that maybe you shouldn't do it. Um, and, and that may be where it came from. And I'm not, not totally sure. There's got to be some reason why early Muslims swept over their enemies so effectively. And it could be down to superior tactics or organization. It could be down to the strength of their belief. It could be down to the fact that they weren't drunk on the yeah, battlefield. It's very possible. You know, like, I'd, I'd, I'd believe it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, to me it does seem like there's sort of a connection, like a little bit of a connection between 
this Islamic prohibition of alcohol and probably a lot of other Islamic laws and um, some of them like mosaic laws that you see in uh, in the Torah um, where you have these ceremonial laws that a lot of Christians don't consider themselves bounded to because they were things that God instituted um, early in Jewish history and Hebrew history to make them stand apart from other nations. And that kind of seems like a little bit what's going on here um, with the Muslims as well, is that there's the sense where all you have all these drunken nations uh, who we want to conquer, and it's pretty easy to just not be drunk, and that's also a way of us standing out and being holier than other nations um, in a very similar way as the Jews did early on, which would, I mean, make sense. They come from kind of the same traditions, too. Yeah. All right, well, I think we're probably going to finish with like a flash round of other world religions and their relation with alcohol. So. Yeah, so let's let's start with uh, Hinduism. So Hindu texts view wine primarily as medicinal. Uh, Hindu leaders don't recommend its consumption for everyone. Uh, they sort of stress that alcohol is a powerful and potentially dangerous substance. Uh, but hin- Hinduism stresses a balanced life uh, rather than focusing on like the strict sort of do's and do nots of religion. So Jainism, which is a, another Indian religion, strictly prohibits the use of alcohol uh, mostly because they preach nonviolence and vegetarianism. Uh, Jains believe that the fermentation process involving microorganisms uh, makes alcohol non-vegetarian, which I think is an really That's interesting argument. But I mean, like, you know, there's there's yeast and stuff going on there. So it's not hmm. out of the question. It's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and uh, Buddhism discourages the use of alcohol. Um, it, it They say it impedes mindfulness and it violates the fifth of the five precepts, which is the basic code of ethics for lay followers of Buddhism. And that, that fifth precept is, uh, I undertake the training rule to abstain from fermented drinks that cause heedlessness. Uh, to round out the Indian religions, or most of them, uh, Sikhs, are prohibited from using intoxicants, um, and they consider alcohol one of those, probably similar to uh, the way Islam treats it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and then kind of moving over to Japan, uh, the Japanese religion of Shinto uh, consumes uh, sake as part of uh, purification rituals and uh, other offerings to the gods. Uh, sake is called uh, omiki in this context, and it's consumed to communicate with the gods and to solicit rich harvest for the following year. Uh, and finally, uh, the voodooists of Haiti and Louisiana uh, often use alcoholic drinks such as rum to be uh, to be able to allow spirits called iwa to enter one's body and help them find strength to survive the everyday struggles of life. Voodoo is really interesting. Uh, learned about it when I was when I went to New Orleans a couple years ago, and I didn't really know anything about it before. Did then. you get yourself a voodoo doll? <laughs> I almost did. They're pretty cool. They had like a cool shop. Um, and it's kind of like a combination of of religions of Haiti um, and some of the, the more Caribbean uh, religions and Christianity and Catholicism. Um, so they do, yeah, very they sync- do like syncretistic up, religion. Yeah, they, they yeah. uphold a lot of the saints, uh, Mary and, 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 and Paul and Peter, of Catholicism, but they also have a very much of a kind of pagan sense of of sacrifices and, and spirits and those kind of things. So. Yeah, that is pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's a cool, it's a cool, cool tradition. All right, well, uh, I think that's our show for today. I think we managed to discuss a bunch of major world religions without like horribly offending anyone. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, we also I didn't make a ton of jokes well, this time around. So, like, we're sorry if that's why you listen to our podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, come for the discussion about <laughs> important stuff or unimportant stuff, as the case may be. Uh, 
then enjoy our yeah. episode. Um, <laughs> uh, and if you did enjoy it, then please subscribe and share. Uh, you can like us on Facebook as the Whiskey Rebels Podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at Whiskey Rebcast. Uh, this has been the Whiskey Rebels. I'm Josh Evans. I'm Drew Brackville. And I'm John Nelson. Enjoy our podcast responsibly. Yeah.